Today's conversation is with award-winning professors of the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, Dr. Kim Saxon and Dr. Park Saxon. This is the Talent the Human podcast. Gary B tweeted on Twitter saying, hey, I really need help on YouTube. Please email me. They ended up offering me a job to work as a YouTube analyst on Team Gary. Are in control of you. What you learned is not about what you're focusing on reflection for the past couple of years. It's really incredible because you're able to see benchmarks in your own time. For me, I just joined it out of time because I was just worried. The things relative to the past right now is because I was watching. You don't need university anymore. I totally believe that. I like it. Are you interested in it? Are you passionate about it? Are you excited about it? Have you explored yourself enough to know? Is entrepreneurship something you're cut out for? We have a conversation today with Dr. Todd and Kip. Kim Saxton. They are award-winning professors at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. They are the authors of The Titanic Effect, successfully navigating the uncertainties that sink most startups. Um, As we always do, um, we are going to have a conversation about business, about growing up, about finding our purpose, and how do we deal with the effects of all of that and how how do we take care of our mental health? So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Todd and Kim Saxton into the show. Welcome guys. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, happy to talk. Let's dive into it. Um, so, I, you know, we've just been talking for about 15 minutes now, and I kind of want to, um, how do you, how did you get to, to where you are today? Um, because, like, you guys are, at a, at a higher level than most of our guests. Uh, you guys have achieved um, you know, quite, you know, quite some successes and I'm pretty sure some failures as well. And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, and, and like me, you guys have traveled and, and done some things and uh, you've raised children, which is you know, amazing and um, you know, authors and all that. So how does it feel to, to be where you are today and, and um, and how do you, you know, how have you cope with, you know, cope with all of it uh, as you, you know, define, because like you said, you wanted to, you know, in the pre-interview, um, you wanted to go into, uh, for you, Kim, you wanted to go into, into um, computer science and all this stuff, and then ended up being a marketer, and, and taught for you is, was, you know, law and, and sciences, and then all of a sudden, it's like, you're, you know, you guys are, are back in school, your PhDs, and um, how, do, how, how did you cope with, like, understanding all that, defining, finding your actual purpose in, in, uh, in your careers? Well, I, so speak for myself, and I think the threads that kind of connected for me when I was an undergrad studying economics uh, kind of built on my history, my family history, My father was a psychology professor, so I was exposed to a lot of the ideas around psychology, and human behavior was always something that that just fascinated me, what motivates people, uh, what drives them, uh, and then getting to see kind of in economics more the, the business side, the analytical side, you know, economics is this really interesting marriage of behavioral elements uh, and then the quantitative and, and economic elements. And I really like that kind of right and left brain or however you want to view it, you know, kind of activating different parts 
to, to try and drive to outcomes um, and settled eventually in my career on focusing on the entrepreneurial kind of context. So startups, early stage ventures, uh, and that's in my research in the teaching that I do is mostly kind of in that space, but then also a lot of work in the community and we've helped start a couple companies. We do angel investing in companies. Uh, so uh, that, that bringing together of the behavioral piece uh, and, and what motivates people and how to help them achieve their goals in combination with there, there is some science and there is some, there are some tools that can be brought to help people uh, in, in our book terms kind of navigate that uncertainty uh, so that they can proceed with a little more confidence and, and not feel kind of lost and, uh, and, and that they're, they're kind of really struggling with the, the human side and emotions, et cetera, which I think, you know, is why we were attracted to this show and, and felt uh, that topic would be a good fit. But that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, you know, it's easy to look back over and see how things yeah. happen. It's harder to, to do this as you're moving forward. But, um, you know, it's interesting uh, with the change in the new year recently, um, everyone has been asking, like, what are your goals? What are your resolutions? Oh, do you have a word for the year? Things like that. And it made me like step back for a second and, and recognize that while we have been successful. I do have some overarching goals. I've never been a really good planner. And so I just have gone through life by taking whatever opportunities are in front of me and um, seeing uh, how to maximize those opportunities. So uh, as I was saying, I, I had to do something as Girl Scout, you know, in high school. And I, I did this internship in the computer science department at the local junior college. And we were just basically doing, you know, checking that the computer programs were running right and doing some uh, data card punching. So at that time, if you were one of my friends, you would get a birthday card that was punched out on the computer card reader, <laughs> um, um, which now nobody knows what those things are. Um, and <laughs> I got hired and uh, to work full time after my internship and uh, or part time after school. And so that led me to think, oh, I'm probably pretty good with technology and computers. And I would say I'm really good at understanding technology. And I discovered that actually coding and things like that to me was not very engaging. And so I went to MIT to learn computers and I, I took an economics class. And I thought that the whole behavioral side with the quantitative side was really fascinating. And I started taking classes at the business school. And I realized that I could intuitively A's in those classes without having to do two, the business concepts just naturally struck with me. So I followed that path. Um, I ended up graduating actually a semester early from MIT because I had taken so many credits <laughs> in the computer science side that it met, let me get out um, a little faster than average. And I kind of apply the same thing at each step. And like we had a child and Todd wanted to go back and get his PhD. So we moved, uh, I did a consulting business from uh, Bloomington where he was getting his PhD and I was listening to him and his classes and his friends. I was like, Oh, that's so interesting. I want to do that too. And so I started to get my PhD a year after him. And it's just like opportunities are in front of you and you just have to be willing to grab them when they are there and move forward with it. So we moved to Indianapolis. He got involved with startups 
So I started getting involved with startups and then, you know, now it's been 20 years and we've been very active in the startup community. And then we stepped back and said, hey, now that we've been watching this and we have all this training about how to evaluate the uh, situations and what affects success, um, that led us to create the book, The Titanic Effect, because we had seen patterns of mistakes that startups made. And so we wanted to catalog those mistakes to make it easier for the next entrepreneur um, that read this. And you'll, you'll, these are things you don't know you don't know yet. And so if you read this book, you will at least now know what a lot of the problems that you're going to encounter are. Not all of them. This is just 32 that we discovered. <laughs> um, but here's a little bit of a roadmap so that you can be less uncertain and that you can feel more comfortable um, because a startup life is so chaotic. So many different things are moving in different directions and so many choices and you don't really know what the right choice is. So we're like, on these, we can help you think about what some of the right choices are. And so that's why we put the book together. That's amazing. I, um, <clears throat> I, I don't consider, I, I don't know, I think my business is a startup. I think I am an entrepreneur. Um, I don't know for sure. Um, yes, I funded my agency. So that makes me a founder. And yes, I lead it. And that kind of makes me the CEO. Right. But those those two terms kind of like scare me. Like I <laughs> I don't know. Like I I was talking to so we're actually going through the process of rebranding the company, uh, you know, fully uh, to, to to make it more wholesome into what our values and our core messaging is. And um, I was talking to to our main designer in New York, and I who happens to be my my little cousin. Um, which is, uh, I interview for the podcast because she's so talented. And, um, and so she's going to, you know, work with me on, and she works with me with a lot of stuff with, you know, with our clients and, uh, you know, leading the, uh, the projects from a design standpoint. And um, I was talking to her and I'm like, I don't even know what kind of title I should give myself for, for the business for, you know, so I, should I just call myself Chief J and, and <laughs> make it like that or or just like you know like guy that thinks that knows and uh it's like i i don't know because i i honestly i am discovering a lot of things about myself at this point in my life and which especially when it comes to 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 leading a business i've always been very business driven but i've never actually ran my business when i was a manager for starbucks i ran it as if it was my own but i it was in my own uh, so like the risk levels there were so high. Um, and then as a photographer and as a you know marketer, I've kind of done it in a way where um, it's more freelance style. But now that you know I'm actually trying to get this you know off the ground and build something that can can be of you know high value, I I find myself as like you know having to make decisions about money, having to make decisions about you know who you know what the, the the clients who we want to work with are and and all of this feels like um you know interesting that's why when ellie our co-producer um brought you guys up on on the list and said oh jay this is someone that i you know because like she gave me the list of people right that come yeah. uh, and 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 i was like okay well um i'm not i'm not sure and she's like well i read about you know their book and this and she, she told me more about you guys and i was like okay well now this book is really getting me which i haven't read and i i do intend on reading it and uh, um um 
the one thing that I love about is how you guys focus on the on the failure side of things and and on you know yes the Titanic was a successful failure in a way <laughs> because it it was a successful enterprise that failed and <laughs> um, and those things can happen and and uh, you know I I I've had my share of you know failures in my life and um, you know I got a point you know when I was working in finance where I burned out you know really you know royally and um i you know i've i've always you know i've always been more interested in the in the failing side of things rather than the successful side of things because success is success is it's easier to understand than failure i think failure has a you know such an effect on our on our on our psyches and that you know for most people especially young people that are you know um because now that's another thing. Nowadays, you know, we have this influx of young entrepreneurs um, because they 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 have realized the changes, and we're going to dive into a little bit more on this and, and education in, in a minute. Um, but I feel like with this influx of young entrepreneurs and and people and, and, and young minds that are saying, okay, well, I have a talent on this, I want to develop it, I want to do something, but that that same drive can be. Um, a little too much and then if failure happens it could you know also have a you know a really strong effect on on some of this uh younger less trained less educated um and, and when i say educated i don't mean like academically but i mean like prepare for understanding failure minds yeah yeah i mean i think it's really important for people to assume that there will be failure in fact you'll be you'll be more successful if you fail the right way and learn from it than if you don't fail at all. I mean, one example I love to give is um, one of the things you might not know about us, but for fun, we train for triathlon. And every so many years, we do an Ironman triathlon, which is, you know, a long day. You have to complete 140.6 miles in 17 hours to do that. So it's a lot of training. And the first time I went to do an Ironman, we were doing it together, was back in uh, 2005. And it was at Wisconsin, Ironman, Wisconsin. And at about 80 miles into the bike out of 112, I passed out on my bike. <laughs> I, I knew I was going to pass out. I could feel it. I yelled. I'm passing out. I was clipped in. People grabbed me. They laid me down on the ground. And I went back to the beginning of the course in an ambulance um, after getting an IV. And so you could be like, wow, you spent, you know, four years trying to get to this Ironman and then you, your body says, no, this isn't going to happen. Well, what I didn't know then is the importance of salt and nobody really in sport was talking about how important salt was. And it turns out I sweat out a lot of salt and it was 92 degrees. And so I just got completely salt depleted and it took eight years for me to complete my next Ironman. But in that time period, I learned about my body, about how it, you know, regulates food and salt and what's the right amount of salt. I mean, you can imagine trying to replace a lot of salt. Um, you've eaten salty food before. Imagine that all I drink is salt water, you know, <laughs> and what that's doing inside my body, you know, I had to learn how to do that. But without having had that failure, I never really would have understood what was going on with my body and how to be a better master of my body. And so... Now I just expect that when I go to do something new diff that's different and hard, of course I'm going to hit failures. It's about how do you 
take that, be okay with it and figure out how to best it. That makes you a successful entrepreneur. In fact, uh, drawing partly on that experience, uh, one of the blogs that we wrote uh, a few weeks ago for the Titanic effect uh, was about how uh, starting a business is like being a multi-sport athlete or a triathlete. Uh, you know, you may have heard the expression, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Um, and, and we argue starting a business isn't even a marathon. It's more like an Ironman because it's not one discipline. It, it's not just running, right? You, you have to be good at swimming, biking, and running and be able to endure all of those or at least build a team that can do all of those things. Building a culture, identifying customers, building a product. I mean, those are different disciplines. Yeah. So that uh, it's a long journey, but it's also multifaceted. And I think it's when people get out of their comfort zone that those uh, kind of challenging emotional episodes kind of tend to, to come up as well as uh, when there are those setbacks or, or failures. Uh, but, but as Kim was suggesting, think of them as learning opportunities. Think of them as ways to learn from that and get better. Uh, and I think the biggest thing, and, and I personally struggle with this as well, but the biggest thing I see with people who are able to kind of learn from failure and move on is they, whatever the relationships are uh, that are involved, just being able to let that go and move on and not kind of dwell on the negative emotion around that failure, uh, I, I think is, is really important to be able to learn from it, move on and, and uh, in a positive direction. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, I um, running, you know, Ironman and and doing all that. I <laughs> have never um, uh, trained for something that that heavy. I once trained for the New York City Marathon, and um, you know, when I was twenties, and you know, can do it. <laughs> like it, it wasn't such a hard. Um, thing, but I do see like my cousin just ran the uh, the Berlin Marathon, and he's run he's ran um, he lives in Brazil, and he's ran the one in in Rio, I think, or or Sao Paulo, I can't remember which one, and and he's ran the uh, the New York City one, and now the Berlin one, and next year he's running Tokyo one. Nice, and, um, great way to see the world. Yeah, and. I seen this like 85 year old guy running the Berlin Marathon. Yeah. And finishing. Yeah. This guy was like, I'm like, I'm like there too. Like I was there with my <clears throat> cousin's wife to just take some photos of my cousin. And all of a sudden I see this, this old man just going and his body was fit and ready. And I was like, I always talk about not wanting to get old, right? And 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 being able to, I, you know, I, I and I do, you know, certain things to take care of my body and I eat healthy, and um, you know, I've cut down on drinking and a lot of things, you know, um, and and at the same time, I'm like, okay, well, how do I get to that point? How do I get to 85 running the Berlin Marathon? Like, I need now, I need to start uh, thinking more about those things. But I wanted to segue here a little bit because I want, there's one thing that that fascinates me about you both is like you both are highly educated people, and um, being the son of my mother, education is you know something that's always been drilled down to me. My mom is always like, education is key, education is key, education is key. But we 
know today, and um, I talked to a few people on the podcast about this, but the way technology is advancing, it feels that education is lacking behind because with the shifts in technology happening so fast, like, you know, we're getting new technology, new tools, new, new advancements done almost yearly, or sometimes even twice a year, we get new, new tools and new, new technologies. I, um, as academics, as professors today, as like, how do you guys see um, universities adapting as this speeds up even more? Because guess what? It still takes five years or four years to get a degree. It still takes eight years to become a doctor. It still takes um, six, seven years to become a lawyer. Um, and in engineering, it's like, you know, if you're not on top of things, you're gonna basically be worthless. Because uh, I think that's one of the careers that gets affected by, in, uh, by technology the most. And if it takes four or five years to become an engineer, um, and then you have to have continuous education, how do we speed up the process? How do we take away things that might not be 100% relevant? So I always say, for example, how about if we reduce the number of required gen education credits before you get your diploma so that you can get started with the work and get, you know, because at the end of the day, the technology gets applied on the field and not in the classroom. So if we get to, if we get to the point where we can give the diploma based on, you know, the actual um, core classes that are for the major, for the degree, how do we get to that point so that, you know, someone can, you know, get their engineering degree in two, three years instead of four or five and, and then continue education afterwards, you know, in a, in a better systematic way, I guess. So at first, it's a huge and, and, and great question that you're asking, and are universities doing a good job um, training people for life, right, and, and, and changing, given changing technologies, et cetera, uh, we, we have work to do, certainly. Um, but there are some pieces of that, and I've, I've, you know, listened to some of the podcasts, for example, with Don Wetrick, who's, you know, from our area, and uh, I think it was Rona Vanderzander, maybe, yeah, uh, was really interesting doing some interesting things on education. And so I know that's a kind of persistent theme in, in some of the things that you talk about and cover. And there are some pieces where I, I, I would push back a little bit. I, I don't know if you know the author, Daniel Pink. Um, he's got a great book called uh, A Whole New Mind. Um, and it talks about how increasingly because of technology, because of AI uh, and, and um, kind of automation and things, the problems that humans can play a better a bigger role in influencing are more and more complex so things that can be automated things that can be outsourced offshore etc um, those are being done so that's leaving the more complex problems that at, at least in, in my mind and, and my experience really cross over between the, the behavioral side that we talked about you know what Understanding human behavior is really not that different today than it was a decade ago, a hundred years ago. Uh, and there are certain laws of science that are really helpful to understand. Now, translating that to the entrepreneurial context, I would just uh, draw a, a pretty big difference between the entrepreneur that is systematically experimenting 
They're thoughtful about their approach. They have hypotheses and they're testing which message works, which product resonates with the, the target market that they're trying to get at um, versus the what we call pinball entrepreneur that is constantly pivoting, constantly changing direction, but without much thoughtfulness or kind of strategy behind it. Uh, so the way we, we talk about in the book and in our teaching of entrepreneurship, um, the the role or, or the, the fundamental kind of thesis is that you're trying to navigate uncertainty, which is different than risk. Risk is like rolling dice or, or playing cards. You don't really have control. You know the probabilities and the range of outcomes, but you don't have much control over the hand that you're dealt. Uh, when you're navigating uncertainty, there are some tools, there are some things that you can anticipate to make you a more thoughtful entrepreneur and a better experimenter and, and kind of thinking like a scientist. So the good news is from a, a, being a professor, those are things that we can teach. Now, where I think universities have lagged is that kind of field training, if you will. Entrepreneurship is to some degree a contact sport. You've got to get out of the classroom. You've got to get into the marketplace. You've got to get into uh, your customer. Uh, you've got to get into your, your entrepreneurial community. So at, at Kelly, um, many faculty, but Kim and I particularly really try to get our students out of the university setting, out of the classroom and into the community and working alongside startups, working alongside existing organizations where they're having to apply that toolkit that they're learning in the classroom in a real world setting, uh, because that's where we think the, the most powerful learning actually takes place. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's a way to, to bridge the academic setting and, and university training with applied experiential learning and, and making people better and more thoughtful entrepreneurs, but it is tricky. And, and I can't say a lot of places are doing a great job with, with pulling that off. Well, I wanted to add too that the, the other thing is it's hard. I know to be patient, but sometimes you, you don't, you have to learn how to learn. You have to learn how to think. And one of the things that we teach are like frameworks. So when you have this problem, here is a decision-making framework that you can sort of look at this piece of information, that piece of information. Well, once you learn, you know, three or four different frameworks, well, then when you encounter a new complex situation, you have a tool bag that you can use. At the time you were learning the framework, you thought it was kind of dumb. The professor made you do this or that and didn't like the way you thought of this or that. And you didn't think about the next step. But later on, you realized that that professor was really pushing you to think in a, in a complex, ambiguous situation so that they were preparing you for another complex, ambiguous situation where there was no ready-made tool so that you could make a tool, right? Uh, and that's what those gen ed classes are trying to help you do too. I mean, you could say calculus was stupid. Why did I take it? Well, I took it in the junior college. I took it at the university. But then when I am in business and we want to optimize something, I have to use the first derivative, which I learned in calculus, right? And if I hadn't taken calculus, I wouldn't be able to understand how to optimize because I wouldn't understand the degree of change of the slope, yeah. right? No, and that's absolutely true. And like I, there's like you know, there's always been like the you know your gen eds that cross over into your core classes. Um, you know, for me in physics, like all the math crossed over. It's like I couldn't avoid it. So, but that kind of like shrinks into time a little bit. But um, but I'm talking like for example, like I had to take three different, and I love art and I love history, but I had to take three different art history classes and two history classes for a physics major. <laughs> or a pre-med that honestly kind of felt like 
you know, I could learn that on my own time. And if I want to pay for it and learn it, I could do that. Um, and what Sorry you're talking about, about when I went to MIT, I only had to take three humanities classes total, three humanities yeah, total. I, I should have, I should have gone to MIT. I'm like, that would have killed me for that. But yeah, he had two kids to pay for school for at the same time. So, <laughs> and, and, and both on international student uh, tuition. So. No. So I would just say that maybe that school uh, did a poor choice of how they managed their general electives. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, it, and it's, and it's. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I feel like I got a great education, but at the same time, um, you know, that that was almost oh, crazy, almost like twenty years ago, and uh, um, it's uh, it's still it's still kind of like. Um, how do I explain it? Um, I feel like today is different because, you know, like even when I was in school and when I finished, technology wasn't moving as fast right. as it is today. And that can kind of like shifts the, uh, the dynamic a little bit. And, and this is why uh, I, I know you um, uh, thought you mentioned that, that you listened to uh, Rana's uh, episode and, and she says, you know, universities may become obsolete. And, and that's, that, that's the thing that, that, that doesn't really, um, it doesn't scare me. I don't see it as a bad thing or as a good thing either. Like it's one of those things that can happen. Some of them might, um, because the ones that stay relevant will continue. But also, um, her other thought was like, you know, let's make universities what they're meant to be, which is research, you know, academies and, and places for you know understanding and developing more because I think if we do that and combine it with like you know self learning and self education, which is you know, today in today's world we're more able to do that and you know aided by by certain advisors through. Just imagine if you had an advisor to your education at the same level that you have as an entrepreneur when you get an investor or when you get into into the business world. Um, so if we think if we think of educating ourselves as a Kind of like so building a business for our education, I think that's that's going to be a little bit of a you know um, a, a way of helping and and then allowing you know people like yourselves and people that want to get to the uh, PhD level and 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 you know and, and, and some stuff like I, I think of fields of education like material sciences and and uh, you know, high level engineering that, you know, that we are gonna need to need because technology keeps advancing so fast. And, yeah. you know, in, 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 in Rana's um, episode, we also talk about, you know, how, how 60% of the people that are six years old today are going to have jobs that don't exist today. And, and that is true. Like we haven't seen something like that in many, many years. Like, you know, we have to go back all the way to the industrial revolution to think of that same, um, same kind of train of thought, like jobs that didn't exist because you know we were industrializing and we went from you know farming and 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 an economy was completely different to, um, and I think that you know the economy continues to shift and it's going to continue to shift and, and some some jobs are going to disappear and some new ones are going to come up and and we need to start preparing people not just for the jobs that they don't know but how to understand the changes that are coming. Sure. So it's a delicate balance, right? So back in 2011, um, I spent six months as a 
CMO for a startup that was in corporate blogging software. So think about corporate blogging software as a piece of the marketing stack. And this was when really we were just beginning to talk about the marketing stack. I mean, you think about Salesforce Marketing Cloud, the company that that was, Exact Target, was there at that point in time. And they were just email. That was it. And if you wanted to do something else, that was a different piece of software, a different piece of software. So there were maybe at that point in time, 50 or 100 pieces of software you could use in marketing. And today in the United States, there are 5,000 pieces of software you could use in marketing. When we talk about a stack, we're talking about a stack of software that is often 20 different types of programs tall. Yeah. So that's a huge change. And one of the things that we do at the university is we look at all that stuff and we try to figure out, well, what is really required for somebody to be effective? So we are doing research, right? I'm on the editorial board for the Journal of Advertising Research. And one of the challenges that the editor noticed is that when we had papers from practitioners, you know, people who are out doing marketing every day, they were very phenomenological, meaning they saw this thing in this one data set. But is that thing true across a wide variety of applications? No right? It was true there. And so one of the things that, that, that we're doing in academia is we're trying to look across that little phenomenon and that little phenomenon and that little phenomenon and that little phenomenon and say, what are the patterns across that change how we do something, right? I'll give you two simple examples. We know that primacy and recency are really important in messaging, meaning the first thing you heard and the last thing you heard. So I did a little video intro for my class. It was, I think, a minute and five seconds. And I had it all planned out. And I and they watched it. And then I came in the first class. And I asked them, what did I say? What, what, you know, what did you remember? And sure enough, you know, half the class remembered the first thing and half the class remembered the last thing. Of course, I had loaded the first and the last thing because I knew that principle, right? So learning those principles is pretty important. And they matter across contexts. It doesn't matter if it was a 30-second ad on, on TV or an email or a video or whatever. We know that these are things. That's what universities do. Help us yeah. find the yeah. universal truths, right? That's why so one I, thing I do in my class is I try to teach those universal truths and I connect the students back. So for example, certifications. You can get a Google certification. You can get a Salesforce certification, you can get an Amazon certification, you can get a Facebook certification. I don't need to teach that stuff to my students. I can just give them the links and, and incentivize them. Go get those certifications. We're gonna learn the principles here. You're gonna get the hands-on stuff there, right? I have a partnership now with those folks, essentially. Yeah. And that's what yeah. universities have to figure out how to do, that there's all kinds of content, there's different places to get that content, how do you bring the content together so that the learning outcome occurs? That's what the job of professors are trying to do. The other thing I would tell you is that we're getting these little micro certificates. I don't know if you've seen some of these that are like three to five classes long that then give you that really great knowledge yeah. on one specific thing. So we're dosing in a, a Coursera, et cetera different ways of, you want to learn about machine learning. Here's four classes together. You'll understand everything there is about machine learning. Most yeah, universities. The, um, uh, I, on the last nine to five that I held, I, I work with this company called um, HCI. It's mm -hmm. a human capital Institute. Uh, they specialize in training for human resources folks. And um, 
you know, the, you know, it was courses and classes and also, um, um, you know, um, conferences that people can attend to get, you know, their HRCs and all HRM, H, whatever, uh, level certifications that exist in the, uh, in the uh, HR world. And, uh, um, yeah, so that's, um, that's one of those things that um, I think is important. You know, certifications are important uh, and also what you guys are doing, which is, you know, giving the, the student the understanding that you have to take what you learn right away outside of the classroom um, and not wait until you, know, you get the, right. yeah. the good old, you know, frame beautifully yep. scripted uh, or, 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 or tight the uh, diploma you know, with the, with all the seals and logos. and <laughs> the, the irony is that the things that you've been talking about, the degree of technological change and the need for learning is more of an ongoing basis. That actually creates a huge opportunity for educators, right? Because if you think about education in the past, it was very episodic. In fact, decades ago, you went and you got your four-year degree, maybe, and then you went and practiced and stayed at the same company for 30 years or whatever until you retired. Um, and then I think it became more episodic, uh, maybe 10 to 20 years ago, where you would get your undergrad, and then maybe you'd go get a master's, and then maybe you'd get a special degree or something like that. So there was, there were still these episodes in your life where you were a student, and then other episodes where you were practicing what you learned. And I think the what was kind of incumbent upon all of us as individuals, and I think this gets us some of what you were talking about, but also as educators and as universities, is to recognize that learning truly is now an ongoing lifelong process, which means the market has expanded exponentially, right? Instead of only people between 18 and 22 are your market, now people at all decades, people are retiring, um, you know, veterans who, who are coming back and may be disabled or may not, you know, those are, there are all these pockets of interest at different stages in life in different contexts. So we have to get better at recognizing where are those pockets and, and how, when, and where do we deliver education that's going to be of value to them, but also flipping that as individuals, we have to be constantly looking for where's my next kind of learning opportunity? Where am I deficient? Where do I need to get a micro certificate? Or when is it time to go back to school? And if I do that, do I want to do that online? Do I want to do that in person? Do I want it to be hybrid? Um, and what other experiences are going to make me better prepared? That could be travel, right? It could be taking on a different role in your company. It could be taking on a whole new job. It could be starting a company. But all of those are learning opportunities, which creates this tremendous opportunity for, for education. Uh, and, and I think that's where we're, we're very much in a stage of disruption right now in sorting through what that looks like and, and how both sides kind of participate in that process. Yeah, well, this gives me hope because, you know, I've, um, I've, when it comes to the education uh, space, I've been a little, a little bit of a pessimist, I'm not gonna lie. Um, <laughs> and my mom so is like, my mom will say like, listen, it's gonna be better. It's, you know, there's people that are doing the right things. And I'm like, no mom, universities suck. They don't give you what they're supposed to, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm all, I've been like a little bit of a pessimist. So, uh, but I've also talked to some people that, that have given me hope and, you know, such as yourselves. And, and cause I, I do value it. I enjoy my time at university. I, and I see the value. When people tell me, 
you know, is it worth getting a degree? I'm like, if you want to go get it, go get it. If you don't, that's fine. But don't stop learning. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, there is data that does suggest you make a higher income if you have a degree on the whole, on average, right? That doesn't mean that you have to uh, have a degree to get a higher income. But I think also Indiana University, the Kelly School, we've been pretty innovative in the education space. I'm not saying perfectly innovative, but we were one of the first business schools to realize that students need to integrate finance, accounting, operations and marketing. And so those classes are taught as uh, integrated core with a final project that works with a real life business. That's and, brilliant. And it's been happening since the sixties, right? So we've done that for a long time. We were one of the first top tier business schools to have an online MBA. This is over 20 years ago, yeah. um, which is now well, huge. Right? I'm very familiar with, you know, with the Kelly school because it's yeah. always been, uh, uh, you know, I've been in marketing and being in, in business myself. I've, you know, always been, it's, it's, when people say it's like, oh, you know, where should I study business? I'm like, well, if you want to go to, you know, to the university, then it's not, you know, your Wharton or whatever, but it will give you probably the most uh, comprehensive. I'll say, the, you know, the Kelly school. Sure. Why? Because I've known that you guys have been doing it for so many yeah. years. And, and like other universities, this fall, we launched a new program. It's a graduate certificate. It's just four classes. Mm -hmm. It's for healthcare professionals who have launched into their first managerial role. So imagine that you run uh, occupational therapy or nursing or some unit within a hospital, and then you get promoted to a manager. And all of a sudden you have profit and loss responsibility and no business training because all of your training was in caregiving. So we give you four classes that will be the equivalent of a, a baby MBA. Right? <laughs> baby but, MBA. So you know how to use Excel. You know what the counting terms are. You get MPV. You know how to understand what motivates human behavior. You know how to lead people. You know what motivates people. We just give you the basics of everything, you know, a little microcosm of business in a one-year four-course program. We have to get Baby Yoda as our mascot. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna that. Boom. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I want to shift you a little see, bit again. We are trying to get creative, is all I'm saying. We are <laughs> trying to see what the market wants and identify ways that we can enhance what the market is is asking for. Yeah, I, I and 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 I, I'm gonna say I appreciate that at a high level. Um, let's go back a little bit and let's um, you know shift back to to the thought the topic of failure. Um, the uh, the effect of, of that on mental health. Um, you you guys mentioned you have two daughters, right? Yeah. Are they are they going to be entrepreneurs or? <laughs> well, it's hard it's hard to say. Our oldest daughter actually works with a, a medium sized company uh, working on their uh, digital marketing. So they are okay. all their online. Uh, commerce stores. Okay. Uh, so learning how to optimize, big surprise. She went to a technical, she went to Rose Holman. So she went to an engineering school and uh, she likes data too, it turns out. <laughs> and our younger daughter is in the middle of medical school. So Okay. Interesting. Okay. So, well, that's. So we don't know what they're going to do over their lifetimes. Probably. I, I think yes, but. Um, no. They're both great problem solvers, but they have different degrees of uh, comfort with uncertainty and, and the unknown. And uh, so how they address complex problems tends to be very different between the two of them. 
Yeah, my brother and I are the same like that. Uh, and we're twins. And we're, I always say we're the worst twins there is because we are <laughs> so different. Like we're not the twins that are like proud. Well, I mean, we're, we're proud to be twins and to be brothers, but we're not like the ones that like, oh, we're twins and we're always together and we do all this. And we've never been, we've always been very individual and very separate from each other. Um, but um, what I wanted to ask is, how do you, you know, as, as you know, experts in your field and, and understanding, you know, the, the process of, you know, basically just building a business is kind of like developing our purpose and understanding what we want to do. So as experts on that, experts on that field, how do you, how do you have, how have you taught them to, to deal with failure and to do not let that be a negative, but turn into a positive? Because I think that when we let it be a negative, it, it has such a detrimental effect on, on some people. And if the person, you know, for example, has, you know, anxiety problems or, you know, is prone to stress and, and all these things, like that could have a, a much higher, you know, impact than, than expected. And, and then our mental health, which is, in my opinion, almost important, it's, uh, you know, it, it gets, it, it becomes, you know, uh, you know, a factor here. How do you, how have you been, and what can you tell to people, you know, that are listening, how to deal with that? Um, I'll, I'll share a few different ideas that, that might be helpful. Um, first, it is okay to give yourself some time for mourning, right? There's going to be a grieving period when you have to let employees go, when you have to tell investors you're not going to, you know, hit a goal or, or that the company needs to be shut down. And it's okay to recognize, you know, part of that challenge of now the, the pro-failure, you know, everybody running around going, hey, celebrate failure. Well, it, it, it still is a very demanding and, and emotional kind of process and, and recognize that. You don't, don't feel a need to like run around the street going, yay, I failed, I failed, because it's not going to feel very good about doing that right away. Uh, and, and give yourself some time, but give yourself a reasonable window, you know, probably in the weeks to months, certainly not years to kind of move on. So uh, that's one piece of it. Two, reflect. So view it as a learning opportunity. What, what were the things that I could have done differently in the book terminology? What are some of the icebergs that I hit that maybe I could have better navigated around? And now that I have that, in almost all cases, entrepreneurs, even after a failure, still have a problem that they are committed to solving and want to, to help their customers, the market, solve that problem. So the venture failed. But it's kind of like fishing. If you think every time you go fishing and you put a line in the water, you're going to catch something, you're going to be very disappointed. Fishing is not about catching. I don't think it should be called fishing. <laughs> I think it should be called standing around and waiting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so learn how to, you know, better. Obviously, I, I enjoy fishing and Kim not as much. So there you go. Um, again, kind of reflect on what happened. Three is to share. It's really important when you're going through that failure process and, and after to share with your partner, your, your family, your friends, your colleagues, um, because people who really isolate and direct all of that inside and, and kind of retreat, I think the grieving process takes a lot longer, um, but also at, at, you know, again, in the, the weeks after, maybe not the day after, uh, being willing to share and, and talk about it, talk about the experience. Um, maybe you do, you know, like a startup graveyard uh, reflection on, uh, what happened with the venture so that other people can learn 
uh, all of that I think is is really helpful. And then the last uh, I mentioned before, letting the negative baggage go and moving on. So not you know kind of maintaining those negative feelings about a person, about a specific incident uh, that that tend to continue to to kind of weigh you down. So those are a few thoughts that that might make sense. And we use those with our our you know our kids. I mean, I, we never wrote it down exactly like this, but I would tell you that kind of goes like that, you know, um, particularly our daughter in medical school, she has a lot of opportunities to get feedback about her performance. <laughs> I think they take a big test about every two weeks, you know, and some go well and some don't go so well. And so, you know, we, first thing we do is if it doesn't go well, we go, oh, it'll be okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. We're so sad with you too. Right. And then when that, per when she's kind of settled out of that, we start to say, well, what do you think you should have done differently? Right. And so that yeah. gives her a chance and then what do you think you did well? That's another one. Some people argue, do the mm -hmm. well first. Like, what did you, what went well, right? And yeah. then now, because you want to hold on to the good stuff too, mm -hmm. right? Every failure's got good parts. Yeah. Um, oh, they're filled with it. Yeah, right. And so what happens, you just get so focused on the negative, you never remember the positive. So, you know, what did you feel good about? What do you think worked? What would you do again? And you just actually have to have somebody ask you those questions because you sometimes forget to ask them for yourself right yeah that's uh, no that's uh, I, I actually agree 100 percent. i always tell people like there's a positive in everything like um whether you win or lose take the positive you know um because i mean i use the word pessimistic and you know before but like i am I, most of my friends say, like, I don't understand how you can be so positive all the time. Like, you must be a marketer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it has anything to do with that, but I'm also like the, uh, I, I used to be one of those, those people that complain a lot and like, you know, wants through a, win a share through a window just out of, you know, being angry or something. And, and then I realized that not, it, it, it never got me anywhere. And um, once I realized that, you know, there are things that we can and cannot control. Um, and, and when you understand that the things that, that are outside of our control, you know, because of a third party, they, you know, we can't let it affect us in a negative way because the only one that suffers is us. Like for example, I'll give you, you're mad at me. I can't control the fact that you're mad at me other than maybe apologize or, or do something, but I can't dwell on that because it's up to you now to, you know, either forgive or move on or say, listen, this is it. You know, you and I don't have a friendship or a relationship anymore. Um, and then I have to say, okay, whether I move on or not, but like it's understanding when we have control of a situation and when we don't, that allows us to keep, you know, I think it allows us to understand better when we need to take the positive and negative from a situation. And, you know, when we fail, you know, if it's a failure directly attached to our control or, you know, you know, what if you fail during the, uh, during the financial crisis, you know, right. chances are that your failure there was not directly attached to, to what you were doing. It's just that you were a casualty in, something bad that happened that was outside of your control 
Yeah. So my equivalent of that is, is the drive time, right? So you're, if you want to be someplace on time, right? Your job is to get things together and get out knowing sort of what's going on. And it's sometimes it doesn't go exactly right, right? You get in the car and you're all stressed. And, and I have, I have to say to myself still, well, I can't control the drive, right? Yeah. So I controlled what got me in the car. And from now on, if I just stress about it, I'm going to end up with a worse outcome when I get there. So now I just have to breathe and move through this phase yeah. that I have no control over. Not be dumb, but, you know, not do stupid <laughs> things in the drive. But just yeah. recognize the drive is going to be what the drive is going to be. I can't change it. Exactly. That's, that's a very awesome way of putting it. It's just very simple. I'm happy I don't have to drive anymore um, here in Berlin you know public transport is great and I love walking living in New York I um, you know I love walking around and you know just moving you know by train or or bus it's it's, it's something that I'm so used to and here in Europe it's it's, it's something great and um yeah, I, I, but I love the analogy. I do miss those from time to time, getting into, behind the wheel of a car and driving kind of like uh, in a fun way. Yeah. Well, in the heartland, we drive everywhere, right? There isn't much. Yeah. Uh, I lived in Miami for eight years, so yeah. I had to drive everywhere. Yeah. And then wear a suit. Yeah. In the heat all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and that's outside your control. <laughs> yeah, that's outside my control. I, you know, I feel like Miami people should not wear suits ever. Like, <laughs> Well, that's a good tip, though. Choose a career where you don't have to wear a suit. <laughs> yes. I mean, here's the thing. Like, I, I love wearing suits and, you know, in, in situations where it, it calls for it because, you know, I love the way I look in a suit. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah so, but I don't want to wear a suit every day to work because then it loses the appeal. And I want to be comfortable when I'm at work. If I'm going to grind and do things, I don't want to be, you know, worrying about my tie and you know, like all that stuff. Like, I don't know. It's a, a different topic. <laughs> all right, guys. Um, I think this has been a great conversation. Um, and, <clears throat> and I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a good way to, to kind of like dive into many different subjects here. Um, um, I, I like it when I don't, you know, put mental mental health at the at the core of it. But I also, you know, I'm able to provide value to you know potential entrepreneurs and and people that you know might be doing the thing. And I think your book is uh, is some is, is something that I have to check for sure. Um, uh, where where can I get the book and like where can people get the book easy to um, access it? Yeah, so it's on all the major booksellers, uh, you know, across the world. You should be able to okay. get it on Amazon for sure. Okay. Also, some local booksellers. Um, I don't know in each country what they are, um, but also uh, we have a website, uh, Titanic www.titanicaffect.com. And if you need to, you can order the book there. We can ship it out directly to you with some other little goodies that you know you don't get on Amazon: bookmarks, stickers, those kinds of things. Um, and we do have a weekly blog post that comes out, and we just every Friday send out like these are the latest tips that we're thinking about. Like I've done minimally viable marketing or how to pick a brand name or, you know, that, uh, that, uh, startup is more like a, a Ironman triathlon than a sprint. <clears throat> so, um, we don't flood your email, email. We just give you little tidbits every week to think about 
Um, so you can do all of those things. The other thing I thought I should share with you is that we wrote the book the first time, the, the first readers of the book came back to us and were like, oh my gosh, it's almost too depressing. Are you aware that some startups succeed? Because we've written the whole thing about failures. We had no successes in it. <laughs> we gone through all the startup graveyards to get all our examples and companies we knew and all that. And so we ended up going back and listening to the How I Built This podcast so that we could blend more success stories that were well documented, you know, not wanting to, you know, use inside information. Um, and so it's a much more even read now. Okay. <laughs> it's our early readers for that change because yeah. they're like, wow, everything is doom and gloom. And that you was never going to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we went into it going, you know, all these books and all this, uh, you know, press glamorizing the entrepreneurial experience just is not very realistic, right? They're not showing a side of it that's yeah. important. You're going to be an entrepreneur to, to understand. So we probably swung the pendulum a little too far in the other direction. <laughs> it's, like, it's like grabbing the, the salt. Uh, the salt jar when you're cooking. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, when I this salt. one, it's just salt. Uh, yeah. All right, guys. Uh, it's, it's been an amazing conversation, and I want to say thank you for being on the show today. Um, I'm really excited about this episode um, and what I can write about it too. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it and uh, hope your, your listeners uh, get some benefit from it and feel free to follow up if you have a couple questions or anything by email or, or uh, let us know. <laughs>